New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You too can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. We at New Dimensions thank you for your support. It is only through a change in human consciousness that the world will be transformed. The personal and the planetary are connected. As we expand our awareness of mind, body, psyche, and spirit, and bring that awareness actively into the world, so also will the world be changed. This is our quest as we explore new dimensions. One does not need to believe in God to be a practicing mystic. It doesn't take a priest or a rabbi or a man to get you there. Anyone can have a connection to divine source, but it takes practice, a spiritual practice. We often begin our spiritual journey with inherited doctrines, you know, established traditions, families, churches, and cultures that lay out the rules and regulations. However, if we're a person who possesses spiritual enthusiasm, our journey is an evolutionary one. It involves transformation. For some of us, as we mature, we begin to think independently, ask new questions, and arrive at our own conclusions about matters of divinity. Today, we'll be exploring the religious crucible of our guest, Jan Phillips. Jan Phillips is an award-winning photographer, writer, multimedia artist, and workshop leader. She's a co-founder of the Living Kindness Foundation, a global network for grassroots philanthropists. Early in her life, she entered a convent as a novitiate to become a nun at the Catholic Community of Nuns at St. Joseph's Provincial House in Latham, New York. After three years, she was abruptly and surprisingly dismissed, which led her on a life quest to seek her personal spiritual truth. She's the author of many CDs and books, including Still on Fire, Field Notes of a Queer Mystic. Join us for the next hour as we explore the compelling path of spiritual healing with our guest, Jan Phillips. I'm speaking with Jan from her home by remote connection. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. I'll be your host. Welcome to New Dimensions. Jan, welcome. Hey, Justine, what a joy and thrill to be with you. Thank you. Well, it's my thrill and honor to be with you, Jan. And, you know, with that introduction, I know our listeners are very curious. Your early life, your early enthusiasm, you wanted to be a nun. Describe what that was, how you decided that, what, what urged you to go in that direction. Well, the first thing was I was 
I realized when I was reaching puberty that I was gay. So it's a very deadly combination to be young and gay and Catholic. So I became suicidal. And entering into sixth grade, my sixth grade teacher, Sister Helen Charles, paid really close attention to me and noticed that I was depressed and sad most of the time. So she started this positive reinforcement campaign, which caused me to transform from a sick little caterpillar to a very vibrant butterfly. And I thought, if that's what nuns do, they save kids' lives, then that's what I want to be. That's how it worked. That's how it worked. That's how it worked. And you follow through. You follow through. And there was another um, teacher, I think, at that time who who you met later on, and and we'll get more into that story. But uh, I was really interested in Sister Robert Joseph, who was a very different kind of teacher. She brought poetry. She went on a march to Selma, yeah, Alabama. Yeah, she marched to Selma with Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Mostly, she, I didn't know this at the time, but she was becoming agnostic. She taught us freshman and sophomore um, religion and home ec classes. Not home ec, what do you call it? Social economics, I should say, social studies. And so from her She's the one that abbreviated all of our religious experiences because she insisted in every other classroom, you start class with prayers. She raised her hand up and say, none of that. Passed out these mimeograph sheets of poems with five poems on it for every day of the week. You know, E.E. Cummings, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, um, Emily Dickinson, et cetera, et cetera. And so we all stood by the end of the semester, every one of us could by heart, say those poems, but Mm -hmm. because she was losing her own faith in God and thinking of leaving the community herself, she was quite iconoclastic and she caught my attention. I really revered her. You know, there was another one too, uh, that I think impressed you, and that was Father Grabis. Am I pronouncing Father it right? Father Grabis, yes. Grabis. He was our first theology uh, professor when we entered the convent and we were postulants our first year in. His duty was to have us separate faith from religion, put all of our Catholic doctrine, he said, put it on the top shelf and never go there again for the rest of this semester because I'm going to teach you how to create a living faith for yourself. Because in his mind, religion was what you inherit. It's a, just a bunch of boring doctrines and dogma, but faith is something that you create out of your own inner commitments and ultimate concerns. And so he had to work very hard because it was 30 of us in the postulate and not one of us knew how to think because the Catholic church only teaches you what to think. It doesn't teach you how to think. That's why Catholics don't know the Bible much because <laughs> you're not supposed to read it on your own. Yeah. You have to go through the intermediary to, to, I guess <laughs> right. the priest. Uh, 
But he asked that really pivotal question, who is God for you? I mean, that's just like, it must have been shocking. Like, what do you mean, who is God? It was totally shocking how he said it was. First day of class, first minute. Okay. He spoke with this very strong Lithuanian accent. Okay, somebody stand up and tell me about this relationship of yours with God, since you're all sitting here ready to marry God and devote your life to God. Tell me something about this big relationship. And we're all sitting there like, what? I had my first anxiety attack in that class because I didn't know what the heck he was talking about. And so two other sisters stood up. They raised their hand and they tried it out, just quoting from the Baltimore Catechism, which we'd all memorized since we were eight. So one of them would go something like, God the Father is the first person of the Holy Trinity, and da-da-da-da, right out. And I'd sit there going, yeah, that's true. It's right out of the catechism. And he looked at her and said, that's it? Yes, Father. (laughs) Sit down. (laughs) And then he went through three of us and he said to everyone, you should be ashamed of yourselves. You're nothing but a bunch of monkeys. All you're doing is repeating everything everybody else has told you. You don't have an original thought yet, but I'm going to get you there. Wow. So that's what he did. He tried to, he was reading Paul Tillich at the time, and he tried to get us to even understand the concept, ultimate commitments. That was way over our heads. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a spark there, I, I would imagine, Jan, for even yourself it, as a young person, you have a spark or a seed planted by him, would you say? Well, I would say the first seed was a seed planted by Jesus because I felt really tight about Jesus because he was basically the only one I could trust because growing up gay, you learn real quick that people aren't in your court and a lot of people will disappoint you. But Jesus, I had a very intimate relationship with. And so I used that teacher as the main example for what I was going to stand for, which was I was going to be a peacemaker. I was going to be a social justice advocate, and I was going to be a light in the world. And those were my ultimate commitments and what I committed to. And that became my living faith. Good thing, because within a year, I had been disinherited by my church And we know I was dismissed from the convent. So thank God for Father Grabis because he taught me. If I had faith, I didn't need religion. That's great. I want to not go too fast over that dismissal. When, uh, because it was so shocking, and, and you really describe it so well in your, your book, Still on Fire. When Sister Thomas, I think, had you go down to the parlor with her? Describe that scene. And so it's my novice director. She calls for me. We're doing the evening charges, washing dishes after supper. She comes in with her little index finger curled up, meaning come follow me, sister. Dragged me downstairs, went into a little parlor, 
and said to me, chapters decided you're not to continue your novitiate. And I tell you, Justine, I was like, I just became numb. I was I was stuck in a world that said this can't be happening because ever since I was 12, my whole life, I had waited six years to be there. Now I'm nearly 20. And she says, you can't be here anymore. So I collapsed. She left the room to go back and get my clothes that I had entered with. She took my veil and I just collapsed on the floor But you know that feeling when you start crying and you say, I have to stop because if I don't stop, I'll never be able to. So that wave came over me and I just froze up, stopped crying, just freeze up. And I said, what am I supposed to tell my parents? Because she said, your parents will be here in half an hour. We heard them being ushered into the parlor next door. I said, what am I supposed to tell them? She said, just tell them you don't have a religious disposition. So when we went into the door where my mom and dad were, I just stood frozen in the doorway and said, we can go. I don't have a religious disposition. Wow. Wow. That's so such a powerful scene. And so thank you for sharing that with us. I want to remind our listeners I'm here with Jan Phillips. She's the author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. And if you want to know more about her work, and there's so much available on her website, go to her website, janphillips.com. Or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. I will not leave you comfortless. I will not leave you alone. I am the air you breathe in. I'm the light of every star and every dawn I will not leave you comfortless I will not leave you alone I am the air you breathe in I'm the light of every star and every dawn I'm here with Jan Phillips, author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. And Jan, here we are in now in your story. Now you're re-entering another life. You're out of the monastery. Before, I, before we go into what that was like, I would love for you to share the parts of the being in this abbey or, or mother house what were the wonderful things about it? What what did you take with you that really has served you even today? Well, that's why I call chapter one, finding the formula for bliss. 
I didn't know it at the time. I just knew that it was a rapturous experience for me. Well, there's two things going on. One, I only obeyed the rules I liked. So I liberated myself from oppressive, I don't know. You mean even when you were there in, would I call it a nunnery? Is that what I would call it? You would call it the convent. Yeah. Okay. Even when you were in the convent, you didn't always obey the rules, right? I did not always obey the rules, no. Particularly when they got tricky because they became relational. And I was forbidden to see sister so-and-so or sister so-and-so because they thought I was getting too close. That the, how they would say it, your relationship is one step away from being carnal. And they would even spy on you and know that. Yeah, they'd spy on who was having, who was going to recreation with who. After every meal, we could recreate for, I don't know, half an hour after lunch and dinner. And the superiors watched out these big picture windows. I never knew they were watching, but even if I had, I wouldn't have known what they were looking for. But they were looking for what they call in the trade, particular friendships which means, you know, a friendship that could go bad because it might be homosexual. They had huge fears about that. So what happened for me is I I started reading Teilhard de Chardin's book, Divine Milieu, when I was a postulant. And it was a very profoundly deep and difficult to understand books. So I found a second year novice who sat behind me who was reading the same book. And we could recreate together Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And I said, would you be my thought partner? I didn't use that word because it was 1967. But would you help me figure out what Teilhard de Chardin's trying to say in this? What does he mean by the divinization of matter? and the materialization of the divine. What do you think the noosphere is, <laughs> right? A, a lot of questions. And so the two of us just walked and talked about Teilhard de Chardin. And I, I was becoming fond of her, but I had never had a relationship really with a woman before. And I wasn't with her in order to have a relationship. But what happened is they watched us and noticed that we always recreated with each other. So they all of both of our superiors, my postulant director, her novice director, called us separately into the office and said, from now on, you can no longer look at they're telling me you can't look at Sister Marie Catherine anymore. If you see her coming down the hall, keep custody of the eyes, which means you can only look from her knees down. Never talk to her, never recreate with her again. It's kind of like she's dead to you. Mm. And that caused me so much dismay that I wrote a note and put it in Sister Marie Catherine's book. I put it in her divine milieu book. It said, just told I can't see you. Not going to go along with it coming to your room at 10 p.m., 
which was a mortal sin in the convent because mm. you're keeping grand silence. You're never supposed to go into anyone's bedroom. So because they had separated us like that, they kind of emotionally, I like to say, forced me. Because who knows, if they yeah. just let us be regular, I wouldn't have gone to her bedroom. But that's when I noticed I did have strong feelings for her. And we would lie down in bed together, but we never had any sexual interaction. You know, like we'd kiss lightly, but it was not a it was not a sexual thing. It was just a very, very deep, intimate experience mm. with her. But that's what they worried about with me, that I was the leader. So they actually actually drove you to it in some ways. Uh, I'm <laughs> thinking of I that. Say. I'm thinking of the fairy tale of Jack and the Beanstalk, where the mother is so mad he comes home with the beans and she throws the beans out and then it they're fertilized and and the beanstalk grows and then he starts his adventure. So yes. in, in some ways, it was like. Uh, In Jack some and the ways, Bean it's yeah. like Jack and the Beanstalk. Yeah. So uh, now going back to that, some of the difficulties in oh the, the formula for bliss, but the but the other the the good the good parts that you have taken away. Okay, so this is it. It's like a boot camp. Same as when you go into the military for boot camp, you're not in charge of your time at all. They divvy it up for you. They say, get up at 5.30, the bell rings, do this, do that. So basically, they divided our day into four, say, four equal parts, which dedicated time to prayer and service and community and solitude. Every Sunday, first Sunday of the month was Recollection Sunday. You don't talk to anyone. You just have prayer and reflection, meditation all day long. But even during every working day, we start with mass and lauds and, you know, we do vespers, common prayers, choir singing. And there was 400 sisters that lived in the house and the chapel was the most beautiful chapel I had ever been in, in my life. And all the rituals were very, highly ceremonialized, dozens of funerals because the old sisters lived there. Most of the house was in the old habit, so it looked very monastic. And so for me, the worst thing that happened after being kicked out is I thought I could never have joy again because I hadn't figured out the magic formula for bliss. But when I did figure it out, it's like, wow, I can create a day with that kind of balance, and then I could have the same joy I had in the convent. So that's what I do every morning. I start out with an hour approximately of prayers and meditation and reflection, figuring out what I'm going to do for service. That's it. Same life. But you worked up to that. I recall your writing uh, going forward in the story, you know, moving from New York, from Syracuse, New York, to the West Coast. And 
there was a particular priest when you did a confession to the priest that you were homosexual. You write that this was the, his response to that was the end of Catholicism for you for a long, long time. The shock Right, because of that. when I, I, I moved to California and right away lived right on the beach, Newport Beach, and lived right close to a Catholic church with a Catholic school. And I went to the priest and said, I would like to give guitar lessons to a few teens who might be interested and introduce folk masses to the church. And I said, we don't need music. You know, I can write it or we'll just sing some things I have memorized. So there was about six kids. We all learned basic chords. That's all I know anyway. So we learned the basic chords and started doing folk masses. And I, don't ask me what possessed me to tell this. He was an Irish priest, but I liked him a lot. And one day I decided to go to confession and we're just talking. And I say that I'm gay. I'm not confessing. I'm not saying, oh, I've committed a terrible sin. I'm homosexual. I was just like, I'm gay and this and this and this. And he stopped it and said, wait a minute, that's a terrible, terrible thing. I forbid you to be homosexual. Stop that right away. And I said, Father, that's like asking me to change my eyes from blue to brown. You can't stop it. It's a trait. It's who I am. It's my, you know, it's it's in my DNA. And we had a little bit of a go back and forth there. And he said to me, go away and try and stop it. And then I went away and tried to stop it. Couldn't. So when I went back to confession, I said, I can't, I'm, this is me. I tried to stop being gay. I can't stop it. It's just who I am. So he says, I forbid you absolution. You no longer can receive the Catholic sacraments. You no longer can do folk masses and do not do anything with those teenagers anymore. So I was banished from that church. Well, again, another another Jack and the Beanstalk uh, <laughs> moment. <laughs> Throw those seeds out. But uh, honestly, that must have been devastating, as dedicated as you were to the church at the, still at that time. Even I was still a good Catholic, and I loved the ritual, the beauty, the music, the communion, the sacramental nature of the church. I really missed it because I'm not doing daily mass anymore. I'm not doing lauds and vespers. I'm not sitting quietly two or three times a day and meditating for a half an hour. So the church basically was all I had. So when I lost that, yeah, it, it was a deep and tragic loss. Yes, yes. And I, I can only imagine Um and, and then there was something that you did that I, I'd love for you to share because it really began some uh, wonderful 
vocation for you as as a photographer because um, you talk about how you you weren't able to communicate with any of your sisters back at the convent, and so you you decided to do it in code and to write a book of and using photographs to send back to some of your friends nuns that were still at the convent and that really started a whole thing for you and I'd love for you to to talk about that in just one moment and I'd like to tell our listeners I'm here with Jan Phillips and she is the author of Still on Fire Field Notes from a Queer Mystic I'm Justine Willis Toms you're listening to New Dimensions I feel you in my heart Feel you in my hands, I feel you in the stars, I feel you in the sand, I feel you everywhere, inside every cell. There is no place here that you do not dwell, I feel you everywhere. I'm here with Jan Phillips, and we're talking about how she really started to hone in on this beautiful talent that you have of taking photographs. And you did this in the form of a book to uh, present to one of your sisters back in the convent. And, you know, Jan, one of the photographs that you actually, you've shared a couple of them in your book. And one of them just really, really struck me so profoundly. It was a photograph of some empty, like Mary Jane shoes, little patent leather shoes, a pair of them on a beach, on a, on a shoreline without any person on them, just empty shoes. It was so profound. So talk about that photography and where it, it took you ultimately. Yeah, so I'm dismissed in June, and they said, we never want to hear from you again. Don't come back and don't be in touch. So it was almost a year had gone by, and I had obeyed that rule. But my best friend in the convent, Sister Lois, was her birthday was coming up. And I said, screw it. I'm going to send her a package. It'll be as anonymous as it can be. It will be not personal. It'll just be photographs and quotations from the Beatles, the Bible, Simon and Garfunkel, right? Things that secret code for how I'm doing bridge over troubled water, right? I had a Kodak Instamatic. This was prior to my becoming a photographer, which didn't happen until 1975. So this is 1970. And I took all these pictures that I wanted to let her know metaphorically how I was doing. So I had those little teeny shoes and I could take them and put them in a playground, put them in front of locked church doors, right? I found a big cross on a hill somewhere and did a self-portrait in front of me leaning on the cross. You know, I'd take a branch 
and write the word Jesus in the sand and take the picture when it was half washed away. So I was giving her secret code to my life is a mess, Mm. you know, and Mm. some things that weren't all desperate, but mostly it was like, I am having a hard time out here. I could barely survive. It was so awful. Right, right. And if I follow your story right, at that point, you go back to Syracuse and and you look up Sister um, Robert Joseph. Right. And so talk about that profound relationship that you had with her. Yes, it was profound since I was since age 15, I, I really loved her deeply. And she was my, what you would call mentor role model, right? And she was going to the University of Chicago for grad school. And she found out the night I was kicked out, which was the night of her graduation from graduate school. Instead of going to her graduation, she got on a Greyhound bus and rode like 13 hours to Syracuse because she knew I'd be a mess. I borrowed my dad's car, picked her up at the Greyhound station. We went to this little podunk restaurant. I wasn't really mature enough or I don't know what the word is. I just could not figure out how to talk about what had happened because I'm now feel I talk about feelings all the time. I'm the queen of creativity. I make my living talking. But back then, I couldn't, I was just so sad. I was bereft. I was in such grief and post-traumatic stress that, you know, I just couldn't even, I wanted her to fix it and to get me back in the convent. And she was against me going in when I approached her to be my sponsor when I was a junior and senior. She said, no way. You going in the convent's the worst thing that would ever happen to you. You'll never thrive. They'll try to beat your spirit out of you. Don't go in. And she just tried to dissuade me from it. But I ultimately said, if you're not going to be my sponsor, I'll find someone else. So she did become. So the story with Sister Robert Joseph was we sat together trying to hold up the cloud that was drenching me in sorrow. We weren't successful at that first attempt, but later on, we ultimately began a relationship that she became my partner. We traveled around Europe and I watched her move through the world in such a way that I now move through the world as boldly and brazenly as she did. She left the convent after 20 years. Yeah, yeah. And I know that you described that you had a relationship with her long distance, so to speak. Uh, You were together for four years, but for 50 years, you maintained that friendship and, and weekly, you know, contacted one another with poems and CDs and DVDs and all sorts of communications and spiritual support. In, in many ways. But also, I think what it was so profound for me was here you are with her in Albany and New York, and um, her brother is gay. And that is where the first gay pride 
Gay Pride Weekend in Albany at the park in Albany. And you were there. What a profound moment for you. Uh, tell us about it. Because I never had any idea that there was any kind of gay pride, anything. Stonewall only happened in 1969, which was the beginning of gay pride, right? When they said, we're not taking it anymore. And all the patrons of the Stonewall bar came out. The police regularly raided it and, and the drag queens and the people visiting it had to get in the paddy wagons and go to jail. One night they just said, we're not taking it anymore. That was the beginning of the gay pride movement, 1969. So this is 1970 and so Sister Robert Joseph, her real name is Margaret Lawler. She has another younger brother named Michael who's gay. And we always went to his apartment. And so he says, come to my apartment and we'll go to the pride events all day. Kate Millett's talking or there's musicians, poets, everything. And it was covered by the NPR station. It was a big deal. And I went there and there was thousands and thousands of people saying, you know, we're proud and loud. We're here. We're queer. And it was like, I just cried. I was so happy to not feel alone. I said, this is, look how big we are. There's mil there's thousands of us here. This is great. I wanna, I'm going to be in the gay pride movement. And that was the beginning of me as a social activist. Exactly. It's a just profound, profound moment, I'm sure, for you. Um, I'm going to skip ahead because um, uh, you discovered a book at some point uh, by the uh, spiritual leader who is a paraplegic, um, Ken Kais, and he wrote a book called The Hundredth Monkey, and out of that, you put together a slideshow called Focus on Peace, which led you around the world. So, so the hundredth monkey inspired you. And so what did you do with that? So I was working as a picture framer and I had just started Syracuse Cultural Workers with four other people. So I have two jobs and somebody left it on my workbench just serendipitously, I don't know what, but there it was when I came in in the morning, the hundredth monkey. I'd never heard of it before. I took it out to read it on my lunch hour. I read the whole thing and I don't need to tell you the story because people can look it up, but it's about how a tribe of monkeys communicated with each other, not using language, but using the power of intention, power of the imagination, um, example, you know, and so the whole tribe experienced an evolutionary leap when the hundredth monkey started to adapt to this new behavior. You know, it could have been the hundred and tenth, but it's called the hundred. When the hundredth monkey gets it, we all get it. And I thought, I sat right there eating my sandwich, going like, I could be the hundredth person right in the middle of the restaurant. And so when I finished eating, I went across the street, gave the teller of the First Trust Bank a $20 bill and said, this 
is the beginning of a savings account. When I get 5,000 in here, I'm making a peace pilgrimage around the world because I could be the hundredth monkey. She didn't know what the heck I was talking about, but I was really excited and committed. And I went right out that day and got two or three more jobs. I became a waitress, dishwasher in the restaurant. I was just working like a maniac. And so within a year and a half, I had my $5,000 saved up. And I had a slideshow on the peace movement, what it looks like, who's in it, what what we do, why we do it. Because if you remember at that time in the early 80s, Ronald Reagan was president. He was hoping to bankrupt Russia, just as we are today. And his idea was to do it with the nuclear weapons buildup. Hence, Russia's got more nuclear weapons now than anyone, if not us. So anyway, long story short, that's what the peace movement, that was the the complexion of the peace movement, all the anti-nuclear work. And the most important, the first time I showed it, I started my trip in Japan. The first time I showed it was to a group of atom bomb survivors called Hibakusha at the Nagasaki Peace Museum. And I'll tell you, I'm not going to say what happened because I know we're short on time, but that is an important chapter in the book. Well, just one thing I want to fit in before our break that was so powerful for me when you said that you you got to Tokyo and you're you're standing there and you're just in tears. You don't know where to go and how to get to your destination. And there's a Japanese man who takes time out of his day to guide you on the several train. It was crazy. It was like being, I'm standing in the middle of JFK and say, Oh, I have to, I have to go to the Bronx. I don't know. And somebody just stops everything and takes me to subways, trains and buses. That's what it, it was like. That was extraordinary. Extraordinary. I'm here with Jan Phillips and we're talking about her extraordinary journey into spiritual healing and spiritual uh, uplifting. <laughs> I just I love your story because it's it helps us all on some level. So she's the author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. And if you want to know about her work, you can go to her website, janphillips.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You're listening to New Dimensions. Our temples and churches are crumbling. The young ones cannot find what they are seeking. We ourselves are the word. Our lives and stories are the ongoing revelation. The creation is the Holy One unfolding. Everywhere we look, we see the infinite. Though trouble is upon us, so is loveliness. Behind the face of hatred is the face of love. Though we come from many lands, we are rooted in the same soil. From this earth we have risen, and to her we shall return. 
Like salt in the sea, the Holy One is deep within us. We are the temples of the infinite. I'm here with Jan Phillips, and she's the author of Still on Fire, and she definitely is still on fire. And we were talking about her being in Japan on this world tour that she commissioned herself to go as a peace pilgrim, so to speak. And you met a wonderful man, a wonderful person, Father Oshida, I think. Is that oh, right? Oh, yes. Yeah. Father so Oshida. tell us about Father Oshida. I was staying with these nuns in uh, outside of Tokyo, and they told me about this priest, Father Oshida, who had been banished up to this place in the Japanese Alps because he was such a social activist. He aggravated the um order of priests in Tokyo. Just your type, right? Just <laughs> my type. And I said, and he had sat with the Dalai Lama and I said, I want to go meet this guy. So they gave me his address. Long story short, I make my way. I call, I ask, can I come make my way there? Lo and behold, he's like, you know, he's a Japanese man. So anybody in Japan is pretty Buddhist. I mean, that's a prevailing culture there. So he's a Buddhist Catholic priest. And the community there is called Takamori. He, when he was banished up to the Alps, they sent him three seminarians, bought enough land for him to raise rice, teach the seminarians to do the rice fields. And he became a spiritual. And of course, there's always two or three nuns there helping the priest. And then there's traveling itinerants like me. So every night he would do a spiritual teaching and his English was pretty good. And so we started mass every morning, 530. We would do a half an hour meditation. We're all sitting on sitting Zazen on the floor. He stays in the same position, sitting on the pillow, does meditation. We sing Gregorian chant. He says the mass. We all have Eucharist. Then we work in the rice fields. And at night he has spiritual class. And so I had been there five or six days and all night when I'm not working, I'm reading the Buddhist text and I'm falling in love with Buddhism, but it's the opposite of Christianity. Cause if you look at the Christian mandate, you might say it's go and teach all nations. If you look at the Buddhist mandate, it's sit down, shut up and understand that everything's unfolding perfectly. Mm-hmm. So I, I say to Father Oshida, I'm in tears now because I'm having so much anxiety over this conflict because I say, I don't know whether to choose be Buddhist or be Christian. I said, be Christian means I'm on this trip. I'm here to teach all people about where I, how to get rid of nuclear weapons and how to make peace in our life and this and that. But Buddha says, just sit down and be still, and it's all unfolding perfectly. Does that mean I should go home and meditate? What should I do? And he goes, no, 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 be both, you both. He said, Jesus was the event of Buddha's thought. You the event. You the new incarnation. Mm. You the everyday, everyday incarnation. You go out and do your journey, but always pray, meditate, know things are perfect, right? So he just collided the two. He mashed up yin and yang and set me on my way. 
Isn't that wonderful? Wonderful. And that really helped you, I think, when later you were in India, which was just madness for you. You thought India was going to be so spiritual and so peaceful. And it really was a shock, wasn't it? Terrible. Chaos, which I always would blame for my outrageous behavior because they Mm -hmm. made me so mad. Because it's chaotic. It's just a chaotic culture. But always people would go, oh, India, so spiritual. And I, I don't know what I expected, but I didn't expect chaos to that extent. So I had every day I would have, like, they'd bring you, say, for example, you order wonton soup. They bring you tomato soup. And they give the wonton soup to the guy at the other table. And then when you say, I ordered the wonton he takes the spoon out of the guy's hand and puts the half-eaten wonton soup in front of me. Like (laughs) situations like that, that are quite not acceptable and many worse than that. So I would always just get enraged. So I made a decision one day that I wouldn't let myself out of India until I could go through a whole day being totally at peace. It took me three months (laughs) because you have to rewire. I had to rewire my brain. So I stayed in India in in a half rage for three months until I finally figured out how to stay at peace in face of the conflict I experienced every day. So you, you got beyond that right and wrong thinking, all that judgment about this is the right way to do it. it, Like we do it. Mm, this yes. is yeah, not the way we do it, not the way we do it. And and I'm thinking also you brought up in your book the um neuroscientist Andrew Newberg, who really writes about how you know going back to meditation and, and what uh Father Oshida said, it's both in, it's it, to be active, but you have to take care of your spiritual sustenance, maybe through meditation and how a spiritual practice leads to a higher level of creativity and intuition and happiness and and how um, it strengthens to strengthen our neural circuit circuits to enhance um, empathy and and this sort of thing. So what what would you say about that? Well, remember Meister Eckhart, mystic from the Middle Ages, said that the process of enlightenment or finding God is a process of subtraction, not addition. And every so many people come up to me all the time and say, I don't have time to meditate. I'm exasperated by that expression. It, I said, you know what? That sounds to me like a mom coming up and saying, oh, I just gave birth to a new baby. Oh, but I don't have time to feed it. right? Mm -hmm. That's how serious it sounds to me. Yeah. And so to subtract the chaos out of your life for just 10, 15 minutes a day, I think is minimal daily requirement to sit in your room all by yourself, no phones, no, no anything around you. I have two candles burning just because that's my way, but we each develop our own rituals And I say some old-fashioned rote prayers that I've, you know, rewritten so they don't insult the soul. And then I go right into my communion with the beloved where I'm just imagining. I'm a post-theist, so I don't have a notion of 
the God that was presented to me as a child. The Sistine Chapel, if you ask me, should be covered with mirrors. But anyway, I do have a notion that God is everything that I'm not. And so that divine, the divinity is in the air I'm breathing. It's in the air in my lungs. I, I'm not a seeker. I'm a finder. Mm-hmm. So every morning I find my source. And we, I say one of my poems, I eat God for breakfast and all day long I metabolize love. Mm, mm. That's what it feels like. That, that, that reminds me of a, an exercise that you gave when you were in Santa Fe. I had a workshop, leading a workshop, and you, you told the participants uh, for the entire workshop, the one rule would be no one could use the word God. And in this way, somehow you were you were helping people go beyond the platitudes to locate God in the body. Uh, so I, I'd love for you to to share with us uh, your concept of of God as as a verb and as a becoming rather than a being. Because God is a conceptual word. Nobody knows the image. What image do you think? If you ask everybody on a plane to draw down their image of God on a piece of paper, it all looked pretty much the same probably, right? It's just the guy with the beard. It's been pounded into our heads that it's masculine because we live in a patriarchy, that the father sent the son. It's like so old and it just doesn't work anymore. But, but that force that the God is supposed to represent, what do you mean by that? Right, because I only knew because I'm driving to Santa Fe with a friend of mine who tells me halfway there that she's an atheist. And I go, Oh my God, you're an atheist. How are you going to deal with all these people that are always saying, God, this, God, that? She goes, I have to deal with it all the time. And we picked up three women from Ohio, Bible Belt. We were in an RV. They come into the RV. We're making them sandwiches and they're saying things like, oh, it was pouring down rain, but God, you know, fixed it just in time so we could get to the airport. And then one goes, well, God made sure I married an alcoholic so I could learn these lessons. And God gave my daughter a kid with Downs, you know, Down syndrome. So this and that. And that's when I said, all right, rules are nobody can say G-O-D figure out what you're trying to say and say it without using that word. And I tell you, they like turned into Amazons. We were there for four days together. And when women start talking like they're the agents of change, they're the creators of the circumstances, we are frightening in our power. (laughs) It's amazing. I love that story that then people really, really started true storytelling and embodying it themselves and empowered by that. And in your whole book is all about empowerment and about not going for help, but being the help so uh, that we can be in the world. I want to thank you so much, Jan, for being with us today on New Dimensions. Thanks, Justine. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. I've been here with Jan Phillips. She's the author, Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. 
and her website is janphillips.com, or you can get there through the New Dimensions website, newdimensions.org. I'm Justine Willis-Toms. You've been listening to New Dimensions. This is program number 3,758. New Dimensions Radio has been making a difference on our planet since 1973, thanks to the generosity of our listeners. You, too, can help make a difference with a tax-deductible donation or membership. Please visit our website, newdimensions.org, and just click the Donate button. You can also subscribe to our free weekly podcasts and find over a thousand hours of audio dialogues in our searchable archive. New Dimensions is produced by New Dimensions Radio in Santa Rosa, California, USA. Our executive producer is Justine Willis-Toms. Our post-production editor is Lou Judson. For over four decades, New Dimensions has been producing weekly conversations at the leading edge. We sincerely thank all of you who have supported us by being members of Friends of New Dimensions, as well as members of our affiliate stations. My name is Dan Drayson. On behalf of everyone at New Dimensions whose endeavors make this program possible, I'm wishing you well. New Dimensions Radio is an independent producer supported by listener contributions. To find out more about the program you've just heard, to subscribe to our free weekly newsletter and our New Dimensions and New Dimensions Cafe podcasts, and to access thousands of other programs in the New Dimensions archive, please visit our website, newdimensions.org. That's newdimensions.org. Or call us at 707-468-5215. That's 707-468-5215. Please join us next time as we explore New Dimensions.